0: like many families, uh, our family has a number of photo albums, family photo albums. And each photo album contains an assortment of pictures of people who matter to our family. Children, parents, grandparents, family members, uh, even church members from over the years, husbands, wives, friends. These are people who are really precious to us. So, when I look through, you know, one of our photo albums, I know there's a story that holds everything together, that brings all those people together. It reminds me of who we are as the Juline family. Uh, it reminds me who I am. It connects me with my past and gives me hope for my future. It tells me that I matter. We're going to look at, the first nine chapters of the Old Testament book of First Chronicles today. Um, nine chapters. This is going to be a little different. I hope you brought a lunch. No, just kidding. Just kidding. But the first nine chapters of the Old Testament book of First Chronicles are filled with some of the people in God's family of covenant love. And at first sight, if you open up to that book... Um, these chapters, they, they don't really look like an exciting or valuable part of the Bible. It's a kind of a sprawling list of names that starts with Adam. So right back to the beginning, Adam, that's the first word in the book, Adam. <laughs> and then it goes from there. It continues page after page, chapter after chapter, hundreds and hundreds of names. Hundreds. Hundreds up to Saul, the first king of Israel. Now, you might be tempted to ask, why are all these names and these genealogies even in the Bible? Do we really need that? Keep in mind that these dry genealogical accounts full of names are the equivalent of God's family photo album. For the ancient Jewish people, these names represent people who have faces, Voices, stories. They matter and they belong there. But what is the story behind the names and the faces that we find in First Chronicles, the first nine chapters? And what does that story tell us today? So let's take a look at the, the story behind First and Second Chronicles, the backstory, if you will, the background. 400 years before Jesus was born, a group of Jewish people who had returned from a 70-year exile, that group was trying to resettle and regroup in Jerusalem, in Israel. And they were trying to rediscover their spiritual identity. Uh, They were a minority under the shadow of the all-consuming, trend-setting, world-shaping Persian Empire. They felt small. They felt insignificant and forgotten. They still had a temple where they could experience the presence of God and worship him. But their new temple, frankly, was much smaller and uglier than the first temple. That's the way they felt about it. They also felt a nagging sense that God was still angry with them and still punishing them for their past sins, the sin that had taken them into exile. They felt cut off from their past and uncertain about their future. In our terms, they were experiencing, I think, a kind of communal identity crisis, and it was forcing them to ask questions like, who are we? Should we just blend into the surrounding culture? Can we really make a difference? Can or or should our children live different lives from our neighbors? Does our faith even matter at all? So as the people were returning from exile, a genealogical list of names was used as a kind of who's who. It was a kind of an administrative tool. But more than that, more importantly, it was used as a spiritual tool. The author of First Chronicles took the raw statistics and the list of names And he preached a sermon. He preached a sermon. He told a story. And here's a simple summary of that sermon. You matter. You matter. That's what these pages after pages of names and genealogies are saying. You matter. So remember who you are. And remember that you belong together. Today we're finishing up a short sermon series on our church's new vision, mission, and motto. We've already looked at the heart of our vision. We've looked at the heart of our mission. So today we're looking at the heart of our motto, you matter. What's our our motto? It's always in front of you as you come in now, because you matter to God and to us. Because you matter to God and to us. Uh, the, the foundation underneath that is John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Another phrase. My English teacher would be so proud of me, my seventh grade teacher who made me diagram sentences and, and all the English I had to learn. It starts with a, con, with a conjunction. For God so loved the world. Because you matter to God. It invites a conversation. It invites a conversation. The thing about a motto, we have to understand its purpose. It doesn't say much. I mean, you you don't find any details in there. The purpose of a motto is really to appeal to the heart at a heart level, especially the hearts of those who are outside the church. What is that all about? What are you doing? Why Why are you doing what you do? It's because you matter to God. And to us. So that's the purpose of a motto. We have to take it for what it's intended to be. It's intended to, to appeal to the hearts, especially those who are outside the church at this point. Um, let me try to give an illustration. This, this may fail, but we'll try it. Um, you may have noticed that we're in a presidential election year. Everybody noticed this yet? <laughs> Can we just... Be like Rip Van Winkle and go to sleep and wake up when it's all over. My goodness. So we're in a presidential uh, campaign. And the two parties, each, each candidate has a motto or a slogan for their campaign. And those two are, Stronger Together and Make America Great Again. Those are their mottos, if you will. Stronger Together, Make America Great Again. Um, those phrases, those slogans or mottos are intended to appeal to your heart. It, and, and especially if you're outside their camp, that you might be intrigued. And then you might look into their platform. You might look into their policies. Because you're not going to get it from the motto or the slogan. Um, that's what a motto is intended to do. It's, a, it's to, intended to be a kind of doorway. So the author of Chronicles is saying to the people, look through the family album, God's family album, and remember that you matter. You matter to God. Remember, in fact, that you belong to royal stock. Spiritual nobility is coursing through your souls. You have an unbelievable, life-altering, soul-transforming calling in your life. This is not just a list of names. You matter to God. Remember who you are. Remember that you belong together. The people of God in that day desperately needed to remember. To remember who they are. Because it's so easily lost. It's so easy to forget that there's royalty in their spiritual blood. Uh, the pastor-storyteller of First and Second Chronicles first points to some of the big names in God's photo album, starting with David. There's a long list of references to David and his descendants that begins in chapter 3. These were the sons of David. Who was David? How would seeing David's face in your family album help you? Well, initially, think about David. David was a complete nobody. He was a loner. He was the runt of the litter. He was the baby brother in a long line of impressive brothers. Kind of an afterthought. He was from a small, insignificant tribe. Yet purely based on God's own grace, God chose David to be the king over all Israel. And God made a covenant with David. And a covenant is essentially a two-sided agreement and promise. When God makes a covenant, he initiates it and he guarantees it. So he says in his covenant, I love you, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will take care of you better than any other little god ever could for I'm the living God. So we need to think about this. Whenever I put anything before God, my career track, money, success, my own spouse, my children, I'm missing out on the best thing in the universe, the joy and the satisfaction of knowing God and, and knowing and living in his covenant love, a relationship of love with him. Whenever I don't help my spouse or my children put God first in their lives, I, I'm cheating them. I'm helping them to settle for less and to find less joy rather than more joy. And, and that joy in the Lord, that really is the story of God's covenant love. So scattering David's name, David's face, throughout the genealogies of First Chronicles, symbolizes the faithfulness and especially the covenant love. That I will be your God, says the Lord, and you will be my people. And in that relationship, we find life and joy and peace. But we don't just need a covenant of love. We do need that. But we also need the assurance that our sins are forgiven. Along with the imagery of David the, the pastor-storyteller of the Chronicles, also focuses on another big name in the family album of the Jewish people, and that is the name Levi. And it, chapter 6 begins to talk about the sons of Levi. These genealogies are filled with references to Levi and his descendants. But who was Levi, and how would seeing Levi's face in your family album, how would that help you? Well, the descendants of Levi became the Levites. That makes sense so far. They became the band of priests who stood in the temple of God and led the people in worship and offered the sacrifices of bulls and lambs, the blood on the altar, which told the people that without the forgive, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So this was in their hands, it's reminding the Jewish people, that God was holy, that sin needed to be washed away by blood, that the holy God would not tolerate sin, their sin, any sin in his presence. But he's merciful enough to provide a way, to provide a sacrifice, to forgive them. Well, that changes everything. We can continue in this covenant of love because we have an assurance of the forgiveness of our sins. Because we are a sinful people. So Levi is in the list of names in order to remind us of God's forgiveness of sin. So you might think this covenant of love promised through David and the assurance of forgiveness promised through the Levites... Well, that must have been good news for the demoralized Jewish exiles who lived, you know, 2,400 years ago. But what does that have to do with my life? What does that have to do with my life today? The exciting news is that the promise of God's covenant with David, that covenant of love, it always pointed beyond itself. It it pointed to a greater covenant, the fulfillment of the covenant, through a greater king who was in the line of David and he was coming. Likewise, the promise of Levi's tribe also pointed beyond itself to a better way, the fulfillment of how do we deal with sin. The blood of bulls and lambs was never meant to be the final answer to the forgiveness of sin. So notice the very first verse in Matthew's gospel, very first book in the New Testament, and this is what it says: a record of the genealogy. God loves names, He loves people, He loves genealogies. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the promised king, has arrived. Later on. Uh, Matthew says uh, that Jesus will be called Emmanuel, and that means God with us. And the angel told Mary that you are to name him Jesus, this child that would be born. You're to name him Jesus, because that name means God saves, the Lord saves. He will save his people from their sins. So you see where these genealogies are going in First Chronicles in the Old Testament. They're going to Jesus. They're fulfilled in him. Jesus is the fulfillment of both of those lines. The king and the priest. David and Levi. So that when you trust in Jesus Christ, when you follow him, you have both God's covenant love and you have God's assurance of the forgiveness of your sins. All in Jesus Christ. So this genealogy, these genealogies help us to find our new identity as children of a heavenly father. When Jesus died on that cross for our sins, on our behalf, in our place, it's saying something. It's saying, for God so loved you. You matter to God. God wants to put us in his family photo album, if you will. It's so easy for us to think we are insignificant. But the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, that gospel gives us our significance, our identity, our purpose, our all in all, our everything in Jesus. In Christ, we have been chosen, we have been forgiven. We have been adopted, we have been called, we have been empowered and equipped with the Holy Spirit of God. In Christ, we belong. In Christ, our past is forgiven, it's cleansed. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. I think we sometimes suffer from a spiritual identity crisis, forgetting who we are in Christ. A man named John Westerhoff tells a fable about a baby lion who became lost and he wandered into a family of lambs. And the lion soon started to act just like the sheep, bleating, burying his face in the grass, running away from danger. One day when the little lion was munching grass alongside all the little lambs, he heard a loud roar. And all the lambs scattered, but that little lion stayed put. And when the lion behind the roar finally arrived on the scene, he looked at the little lion and he said, What are you doing here? Why, I'm munching grass, said the little lion. The big lion asked, But what is that pathetic noise you're making? Oh, that's called a bah. <laughs> the big lion took the little lion over to a quiet pool of water and said, look at our faces. Wow, I'm just like you, said the little lion. Yes, you are, said the big lion. Now you know who you are and whose you are. Start living like a lion. That's what it is to follow Jesus. We've got to know who we are and whose we are. Children of God followers of Christ, remember who you are. You matter. The author of Chronicles reminds us that there's royalty in our spiritual blood. We're sons and daughters of a heavenly father. We're brothers and sisters of the risen Christ. The risen Christ. The one who is greater than both David and Levi and who fulfilled their lines on our behalf. Remember who you are. But our pastor-storyteller in First Chronicles has another message for us, and that is remember that you belong together. You're not a bunch of lone rangers. <laughs> you belong together. This family photo album doesn't just have a few big names. It's got some big names that we know, but it also contains, really, just it's like a sprawling kaleidoscope of men and women, old and young, high and low, Jews and non-Jews, in other words, God developed his plan of salvation through a wildly diverse group of people. And he continues to do so today. These names, these genealogies and Chronicles give us a great sense that God is working in the world over many generations with many, many different kinds of people. This is a very interesting list. It's a very inclusive list. Perhaps when the people first saw it, they may have said to themselves, you know, I'm happy to have the tribes from the southern kingdom of Judah in there, but I don't know if I want those moral failures from the northern kingdom uh, in there. If you look at chapter 9, verse 1, all Israel, didn't leave anybody out, all Israel was listed in the genealogies recorded in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. They were taken captive to Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. And I don't know if I want those unfaithful folks in the, in, in the genealogy. And never mind that I'm, I'm unfaithful myself sometimes. That there are times when I'm a moral failure, but let's not go there, right? We excuse ourselves and we judge others. But God says, everybody's on the same ground. Everybody's on the same level ground, folks. We all need a savior. We all need a king. And that's Jesus. Maybe some of them said, you know, I like, I like my friends from my own generation. Eh, but I don't know if I want to hang out with you know, people from you know, a different generation. Those older folks or those younger folks. They're all there. We're, we're all in this together. We belong together. The pastor storyteller in Chronicles never loses sight of the importance of unity. Unity among the people of God. One of his favorite phrases, if you take the time to read through it, is all Israel, all Israel. Not just some of Israel, all Israel, all Israel. It's everywhere. He wants the unity of God's people to run deep, to run across racial and age and gender and socioeconomic lines. Look, we, we have a big problem in our country. I've been thinking about this. I, I remember back in 2007, two major news stories uh, broke about the same time, and having them side by side was really sort of powerful for me. The first one was the firing of radio personality Don Imus over racially charged remarks that he made about the Rutgers University women's basketball team. The second was Duke University lacrosse players being found not guilty of sexual crimes against an African-American woman. And those stories came out, and they just stood there side by side. And they revealed, once again, nothing new, but somehow more painful, that a massive racial divide exists in our nation. And I'm not commenting on whether those decisions were right or wrong. I, I just wanted to share with you today what disturbed me the most, and continues to disturb me, is how most, how how Black Americans and White Americans viewed these issues so differently, so differently. How men and women judge those issues so differently, and and many. I don't know, don't seem to have a clue as to what it feels like to be degraded. To be degraded as a young black woman or a young black man in our country. So this this racial divide, it continues. It continues to reveal itself in ongoing violence and misunderstanding across racial lines. It's in the news all the time now. Am I being too sensitive? Am, Am I overreactive? Many would say this isn't, my problem, I didn't make the mess, it's not my job to clean it up, I disagree. I frankly disagree. The pastor storyteller of Chronicles and the authors of the New Testament, I believe, say to us, this is your issue. You are the people of God. You are the church of Jesus Christ. You are a new and radically different community called the church. And God breaks down the walls of separation in the church. He starts with the wall of separation between us and God. And then he starts dismantling all the walls that we've erected between each other. The gospel tears down the walls. It's really that simple. That's what the church is. From the beginning, God has had a plan to bring all nations, races, and socioeconomic groups into a relationship of covenant love in the church of Jesus Christ. Take another look at 1 Chronicles 1, verse 5. Here we we meet the seven sons of Japheth. And the names don't mean much to us, but let's unpack them. The seven sons of Japheth founded the peoples of Europe and Asia. From Javan came Greek Ionia, from Gomer the ancient people of the Russian... Plains from Mede, the Medes and the Persians of Iran, from Tubal and Meshech, the inhabitants of the Turkish plateau. And then in verse 8, the four sons of Ham, they founded the ethnic groups of Africa and southwestern Asia. And they're all in the genealogy of God. They're all there. We're all there. God is calling us to a profound unity that is impossible apart from Jesus Christ. But with God, all things are possible. All things. Consider the message of Ephesians chapter 4. How do we live a life that is worthy of our calling in Jesus Christ? The heart of it is we become one. We become unified. Is unity easy? No, it isn't. Uh, The Apostle Paul in verse 3 of Ephesians 4 tells us to, to, to work at it. Make every effort. Not just some effort, every effort. To keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Only the living God, the Holy Spirit, can bring unity to diverse people. In bringing them together through redemption. It's all done on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ. But then we're called to keep that unity, to not cheapen it, to not say it's not that important. Jesus died for this. It's very important. Make every effort to keep the unity. Are you making every effort to embrace and to understand people From different backgrounds, different cultures, different perspectives, different generations. You try to understand what it's like to be non-white, non-black, non-American. The pastor-storyteller of First Chronicles challenges us. He really challenges us. And he does it with some big, diverse names. But he also intentionally includes a lot of what we would call little people who have little names. People we don't really know. People who were not important or didn't seem to be in their own time. But they belong here too. They belong. So the list in Chronicles includes Tamar. She was a victim of incest. And Bathsheba, a foreign woman who had an affair with King David. The genealogy starts with Adam, the first man and moves through Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, all great, famous people that God called and used. But it ends, if you look at the very end of chapter 9, this is amazing to me. This genealogy, all these names, it ends with 15 verses about the guys who guarded the temple. They guarded the temple of the Lord. The gatekeepers, they would spend the night stationed around the house of God because they had to guard it, and they had charge of the key for opening it each morning. Those guys were important. Nobody was getting in if they didn't turn the key. <laughs> they got 15 verses at the end of chapter 9. That's amazing to me. Moses Moses gets a verse or two. These guys get 15. <laughs> and then here's a guy named Mattathiah. You ever heard of Mattathiah? He's in there. He's in there. What did Mattathiah do? He showed up to make bread early every morning. That was his job. He did that day after day. He made bread. A Levite named Mattathiah never heard of him. Well, he was entrusted. He was entrusted with the responsibility for baking the offering bread. Do you ever feel like Mattathiah? Maybe you feel like what you do or what you are doesn't matter. But here's the message of these genealogies, the names that are in God's photo album, his family. You matter. You matter to God, and you matter to his people. You matter to God, and you matter to his people. We can easily start to feel small and unimportant. We can wonder, you know, what difference does it make? We'll never have an impact in our culture why don't we just blend in, fly under the radar, and just, you know, do a little church stuff here and there, and we'll just kind of hang on until Jesus comes back. I'm, I'm guessing that the people of God who had returned from the exile, they were thinking something like that. Let's just, you know, we're just going to try to hang on. We might not make it. They had returned from exile. It seemed like the glory days were over. They were dejected. They were defensive, but the author of Chronicles, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling us, no, 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 you are God's covenant people. It doesn't matter how big or small you are, you're God's covenant people. You have a special calling that no one else can do. The public schools, Kiwanis clubs, sports teams, choirs, marching bands, civic organizations... They're all good. They all have their place. But none can take your place. You are the church of Jesus Christ. Nobody can take your place. You're marked by God's covenant love in Christ. And the world desperately needs you. Desperately needs the Jesus you follow. And so you and I have this privilege to be a light to the earth pointing people to God's incredible love and amazing forgiveness in Christ. So look at your heritage, look at the people in your family album, the high and the low, the rich and the poor, the Jews and the foreigners, the mighty and the humble, the kings and the rulers. They're all in your family tree, all of them. So you have royalty in your blood. You matter to God. He sent his son for you. You belong to this rich, sprawling family tree. <laughs> Don't you know how much you matter to God? Do you know how much you matter to God? As a church, we have a job to do, a calling to carry out that no one else can do. And how can you walk away from a job that only you can do? So, let's say you're a mother or a father, you have a job to do, right? You can't hand that off to anybody else. I mean, nobody else can replace you. Now, God can raise up mentors, friends, other family members, to help and support your child, but only you can be you, father, mother, to that child. Maybe you don't have children, but God has put you somewhere. He's put you in a workplace. He's given you a job. He's put you in a particular school. And you may look around and wonder, why doesn't somebody do something about... and then you fill in the blank, right? Why doesn't someone share the gospel with these people? Why doesn't someone make a difference in at my high school, my college, my hospital, my factory? And God says, well, That's why I put you there. You. You matter there. You make a difference there. Christ in you. The hope of glory. So don't wait for someone else to do that calling, that job. God says, I've called you. So feed my sheep there. Lead them into the the beautiful grace and the, the strong truth of God's word. So God is still putting together his family photo album. How do you get your picture in there? How do you get your picture in the family photo album? The Apostle John in his gospel puts it like this, chapter 1, verse 12. He says, to all who received him, that is Jesus, they're talking about Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's how your, your picture gets into the family photo album. God puts it there. But it has to do with you and Jesus, doesn't it? I was thinking about this. I just have to share something um, about this that happened here last Sunday. And I'm not going to use any names to embarrass anybody, but something amazing happened here last Sunday. And it's the kind of thing that would fly under the radar. It's like these genealogies. You might never know. You might never see it. I want to tell you about it. Because it it matters. There was a girl here with her mother and her sister. She's about seven years old. And they've come before. And there was no kids' connection last Sunday. That's the way it goes. And she really liked kids' connection. So now she had to sit and listen to a sermon. That's hard. Amen? (laughs) That's hard. So, you know, but God... Settled her down, settled her in, and she started listening to the sermon. And then when we came to the Lord's Supper, she was listening to that too. And at some point she turned to her mother and said, I want to become a Christian. I want to become a Christian. Her mom said, well, let's talk with the pastor after the service. Well, after the service, the pastor was talking to people They were all big people. And maybe that was a little intimidating to this girl. So we all went over to the barbecue, right? If you missed the barbecue, man, oh, man, that was amazing. So what was going on? A lot of things were going on during that barbecue. But during that barbecue, this girl went up to a woman in the church who she knows. And she said the same thing, I want to become a Christian. And so this woman said, well, well, come over here, let's talk. And she took her into the junior high classroom. And they talked about Jesus. And this seven-year-old girl prayed to receive Jesus Christ as her Savior. Right there during the barbecue last week. She matters to God. (laughs) This is how God works. It's so exciting. It's so exciting. So she leads the way. Children always lead the way. What do you need to do to all who received Him? Jesus Christ, to those who believed in his name. Again, what's his name? Ah, Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. What's his name? Ah, Emmanuel, God with us. <laughs> if you receive him, if you believe that he is God who has come to be with you, that, that he is the Savior who forgives your sins, then he gives you the right to become children God. What you have to do is receive Christ as your Savior and the Lord of your life. The Lord that he is. He's king. By putting your trust in his name. His name is Jesus. The Lord saves. His name is Emmanuel. God with us. He is the Christ. That means he's the Messiah. The promised Messiah who was going to come. The anointed redeemer for those lost in sin. Broken. Shattered by sin. His name, the Savior, God with us. His name brings forgiveness. His name brings healing. Makes you whole again. Brings you life abundant and life eternal. God God wants to write your name into that photo album. The book of life. He wants your name there. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. We don't want anybody to be left out. You know, a partial family is not a family. A partial partial fellowship falls short of God's divine ideal. So if you're here today and you think, well, I'll never be long, God is calling you. You matter to him. The question is, will you answer the call of God that's speaking right into the core of your being? Will you answer that call and say, yes, Jesus, I need you. I trust in you. I receive you. Forgive my sin. Make me whole. I've done so much damage to myself. Others have done so much damage to me. Can you really make me whole? I I believe it. Help my unbelief. Jesus can do it, and he will. He's a strong savior. So come. (laughs) Come to Jesus Christ. Come, sons and daughters of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, remember who you are. Remember that you belong to God and there's royalty in your blood. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what you've done or what's been done to you. It matters to God and he's done something about it. Because you belong to King Jesus. Remember that you belong together. This is so important. You belong together, black, white, Latino, Chinese, Korean, male, female, rich, poor, white collar, blue collar, American citizens, non-citizens, citizens of another nation. You matter to God. You matter to his people. You belong together. Amen?